We turn with you now in God's Word to the Old Testament, to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head when on his bed. And he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast. Dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered to him, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed." I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. And I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with 
its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet, and the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings, who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. This is the end of my account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Let's pray. Great and heavenly Father, you are the Almighty, the Ancient of Days, and all things are in your hands. And Lord, we recognize that though these words are thrilling, we shall not understand them, and we shall not profit by them unless you yourself do your work through your Almighty Holy Spirit to open up our hearts that we might receive these things gladly, joyfully. And in obedience, that they might be rightly printed on our hearts and in our memories, that they might do us good. How we pray, Lord, that none of your words would fall to the ground, but all would be kept to your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 We find ourselves in Daniel chapter 7, now at the halfway point of the whole book of Daniel. You can see very easily that it's divided up very neatly into half between the historical section, the first six chapters, and then the final six chapters are these prophetic visions given to Daniel. And so now we move to this prophetic section. And this is introduced for us in the first verse, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So this is slightly back in history from where we were in chapter 6. The first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. And he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. This is how God, in his, through his almighty Holy Spirit, made himself known um, in previous times and to his prophet Daniel on this occasion. Now, to put these things in perspective, the 70 years of captivity were winding down. 
In fact, we'll soon enough see in the book of Daniel, Daniel notices by his calculations, not that it's a surprise to him, he's been, of course, watching very carefully for the end of the 70 years. He knows that the 70 years of captivity are coming to an end. But the Lord knew this as well. And in his providence for his people, the time was right for him to send some idea of what would happen beyond that. No doubt the people were, had all their, their, uh, their mind fixed on when are we going to get out of Babylon? When will we get back to the land? And perhaps they had in their mind that everything, though, that was going to be the days of the kingdom. That that was going to be the, the halcyon days of, of this ideal situation on earth. And that it would ne- not again be troubled by any of the kingdoms and empires of the world. So it was right then that the Lord let them know that that was not to be the case. That in fact there would be other empires. One would go, one was already soon to be gone, but there would be other empires to come, and yes, they would trouble God's people. And that would, this would be a feature indeed in various ways until the end. They needed to know that, and we need to know that. Because if we get too wrapped up in the particular details and situations that are happening right in the moment as we experience them, if you were to give yourself over just to be on the internet and to see the terrible things that happened in this world, you would soon enough be depressed. You would soon enough be in despair when you consider just how bad things are and you think of the threatening aspect of things that they could be even worse. God doesn't want us to live continually in that. God wants us to see the larger picture, and he in his goodness sent to his people then and to his people now the larger scope that you, can all, you cannot get this on the internet. You get this from the word of God that shows us what's going to happen until the Ancient of Days comes. And there are several things that happen. Kingdoms, for instance, are going to come and go. And uh, again, for our our young people are keeping track of these things. The title of tonight's sermon is Until, Until the Ancient of Days Comes. What's going to happen until the Ancient of Days comes? And there are some things that we can say. First, that kingdoms come and go. Second, that Satan rages. Third, that God yet reigns. Fourthly, and perhaps most importantly, Christ is setting up the everlasting kingdom. These are the things that are happening. And they will happen until the Ancient of Days comes and settles matters, settles accounts, and brings in the everlasting kingdom. And we, as God's people, need to keep all of these things in mind until the Ancient of Days comes. Well, our first point is that kingdoms will come and go. It says in verse 3, the four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other, and thereafter they are explained, they're given their details. And Daniel, thankfully, wants to know from presumably the angel who spoke to him. He wants to know the truth of these things. And in verse 16, I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. So we do not have to guess too much. We do not have to wonder. We understand the principle. These are kings and their kingdoms which arise on the earth. Now we'll just briefly again. I'm not focusing on the details. I'm giving you the larger picture. But we'll go through these kingdoms. There's in verse 4. The first 
was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and given and was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And that's fairly clear. We think that that's the Babylonian Empire. And it is it was like a lion. And its majesty, we mentioned, perhaps in some ways, no kingdom uh, reached that height of of intense glory as did under as it did under Nebuchadnezzar. They themselves used the symbol of a lion. And if you go to the uh, the um, British Museum, you see something that looks, roughly speaking, like what is given in the dream. That is the Babylonian Empire. Secondly, then suddenly another beast, and we're reminded about that, aren't we? The sudden change of kingdoms. That very night, as one kingdom came to an end and another came into being. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said, thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. And most would say that this is the Medo-Persian Empire, the one that... Uh, Daniel, in fact, when he he had this, um, as he was indeed dreaming this dream, would soon enough experience that change over from one to the other, and perhaps and it was not he was not overly surprised. Uh, did not those events did not overtake him so much as he, when he interpreted the handwriting on the wall, as he already knew that suddenly one kingdom was going to turn to the next. And then in verse 6, after this, I looked and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. Beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. And that's usually taken to be Alexander the Great and his amazing empire. He conquered the world with such great speed as a leopard, faster than these other beasts, far faster. And also had not just two, but four wings moving so quickly, but which was divided to four men upon his death. And perhaps those are the four heads. And then in verse 7, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Well, again, uh, there's, we can't speak for absolutely 100% certain, but it would seem to be the Roman Empire and its conquest of the, the known world, more complete, more thoroughgoing in its extent, more long-lasting than its predecessors, although maybe in some ways mixed. And it would be the one that would cause perhaps even more trouble for God's people over time. And, well, anyways... What do we learn from these things? What do we take from these events that are given to us in God's prophecy? The first is the point that I've mentioned, which is that kingdoms will come and go. Isn't it great to have them just listed like this? There are entire huge books written on every one of these kingdoms. And here they are. They only get a verse apiece because that's all they're worth in the sight of God. They'll come and they'll go, and we'll not get too excited or lose too much sleep about them. I'd say also we learn this remarkable prophetic word that is confirmed. It reminds us of the veracity and the power of the word of God. Now, these details which are given, as I say, some of them are more clear than other, but the, the clear ones are so clear they could not possibly be mistaken, and so much so secular academics take this as proof positive that this must be a forgery because this is so amazing. This is so unambiguous, a prophecy of what was going to happen. They say, well, 
Look, Daniel must have been written in the time of the Roman Empire. This must have been centuries later. This is prophecy ex eventu because no one could possibly have known. They start with the supposition that you can't possibly know the future and that, that God does not give prophecy and therefore makes the only conclusion they know how to make. And somehow... Somehow some clever forger is able to insert this into the scriptures of, of Israel and cleverly no one even noticed that it popped up centuries and centuries later. And what do you know? That's their explanation. Well, it just tells you the willful blindness of, of people in their darkness. that They would not see what we see, which is so blindingly obvious that this is absolute confirmation of the reality and goodness of the word of God. And we would say something else to know. The kingdoms of this world, as a rule, will be hostile to the people of God. There will be exceptions. There will be times of respite. But as we see, these are not friendly animals. They are not kindly beasts. They are, they're not pets. But they're all monsters. And they bear their teeth and claw to us as God's people. As we receive them, as we experience them, they are not friendly to us. And so that is explained in, in great depth later on in the chapter as it explains that the saints will be persecuted um, by these kingdoms. But mainly, more so than all of these things, it is a needed, much needed reminder that God is sovereign over all these things. There will be kings and kingdoms. They will reign. They will persecute God's people, but God is completely sovereign over them all, so much so that he is able to know and to determine beforehand and even to tell his people the details of their careers and their fates and how these things will happen well in advance. What does that say to you? How, how can God can explain these things before they happen? How do, what does that say to you? He's in charge. He's in control. Do not ever think to yourself, where is God in this? Has he been dethroned? Has he been usurped? No, no, no. This is in accordance. Everything is in accordance with his plan. And we should not be overly upset when these things happen. God is sovereign. Well, anyhow, that's the kingdoms. These kingdoms are going to come and go. And we should learn the lesson from the fact that they come and go. And many have already gone. Secondly, Satan rages. Kingdoms, what's going to happen until the end? What's going to happen until the Ancient of Days sits? Well, kingdoms come and go, but secondly, Satan rages. It says in verse 8, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one coming up among them, before whom were three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And there in his horn, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. There is a lot more debate on this one. Some think that this is Antiochus Epiphanes, one of the most infamous uh, persecutors of God's people. Some think that this is uh, perhaps the Antichrist himself, and, and some just plain Satan. Well, to my mind, whether it was Antiochus Epiphanes, whether it's the, the Antichrist himself, one thing that we can be absolutely certain is that Satan is the one who is animating them. And so I, as we consider that reality that Satan is behind such a figure if he is not the figure himself, there are two main figures for us to notice. A, that rather than great strength or physical weapons, we have this mouth speaking. 
right? As opposed to the lion with its claws and its, and its teeth, and as opposed to the leopard, as opposed to the bear, we have rather a mouth speaking. And this, friends, is the great power of our enemy. It is not that he has claws and teeth to reach us. We know in some sense he's been declawed. But what he does have and what he's always had is a mouth. And this is the great power of the enemy. It's always been so. Satan's deception of Eve in the garden. That's why it's described, you know, in, in John 8.44, he's described as a, the father of lies. You are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. That is his nature. He is a liar. That's what he does. His great work, his great weapon is to speak lies to God's people, to all people, to deceive them. And so when he's described in Revelation 12, for instance, that great dragon, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, he's unveiled for what he is, who deceives the whole world. That's what he does. He does not command the world through force so much as he deceives the whole world. And the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So A, he is this mouth speaking, and B, what he speaks are pompous words. Because this, our enemy, he is characterized by pride. That is his great thing. Isaiah fourteen twelve. remember? How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mountain of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the most high. Those are pompous words. There could be no more pompous, swelling, prideful words imagined than to say, I will ascend. He, a mere creature of yesterday, I will ascend to be like the most high. That is the heart of Satan. We can be sure of that. Well, that's Satan in his rage. He will be speaking against us. He will be using his mouth to speak against the saints and to speak pompous words against the Lord himself. What's going to happen to him? Well, that brings us to our third point. God reigns. Kingdoms come and go. Satan, he rages as much as he can within the bounds given to him by God, but God reigns nonetheless. Verse 9, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. And the thing I I notice as I read that, the idea of thrones being put in place, it kind of reminds me actually of the way that our building is set up. We have uh, those who in their kindness come and set up The chairs are not in their place, but someone needs to come and put the chairs in their place. There is a preparation going. In in some sense, it's not the situation of us rushing in here, but rather everything's happening in its proper time and the preparation is given. The chairs are set. And then the the procession, as it were, comes. And we come and are seated. Well, more so is the idea of the Lord God himself his throne is set in place, and the thrones of his, indeed, of his saints along with him. 
And it all happens at a measured pace. It's not in a hurry. And there's no great struggle or effort involved at all. Because God simply reigns. He always has. And he has, managed, he has maintained perfect control throughout all of history, throughout all the time of these various empires coming and going. They're all at his hand. He controls them perfectly. And at his set time, when he desires, as he is predetermined, all times are in his hands, he will set his throne in place and he will come take his seat. He is in control. But at his appointed time, he will make his control, his kingdom more visible, you see. That's the difference. He does reign. But there is a distinction now between the visibility of that reign and what shall be. Well, his sovereignty will be complete. And we consider then this ancient of days. How is he displayed to us? Because those are precious things. Whenever we get any glimpse of of the Lord God, we must treasure up every little bit that we see. What do we see in verse 9 of this God who reigns? We see that his garment was white as snow, and that also the hair of his head was like pure wool. And furthermore, his throne is a fiery flame, and its wheels a burning fire. His fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. What does that point to? Well, this brilliant whiteness in his garment, that's, that's purity, isn't it? Just like the idea of the saints being clothed in these white robes because they're pure. They've been washed perfectly clean in the blood of Christ. Of course, the Ancient of Days doesn't need to wash his garments. They are inherently, perfectly, brilliantly clean in his purity. And what about that fiery flame and burning fire? Well, that's his holiness, his burning, pure holiness. It is rightly likened to the sun. You know, people say, why is it that we didn't have a sun on the first few days Well, part of the answer is that the Lord is not going to diminish his glory by giving us the impression that there has to be a sun. Because the sun is a temporary provision and it is a wonderful picture of the glory of Christ. But we didn't have it once and we won't have it in eternity. That's what the word of God says in Revelation. There will be no sun. We won't need it. It will be the glory of Christ. And that burning holiness will not be harmful to us. It'll be as, as welcome as the beautiful afternoon sun we have on this spring day for those who have lived in cold, dark, wet winter to come receive the glorious warmth and the wonderful light and brilliance of Jesus Christ. Of course, we know that that burning holiness is, has a different effect for sinners. That is, in fact, a way to describe hell. It is those Sinners who experience the wrathful presence of Christ and all of his burning holiness. And there they will be burned. They will not be finally and utterly consumed, but rather in the presence of his holiness, those who are unholy will burn. Well, he was brilliant and he has this burning holiness Infinite, perfect, burning holiness. And then what else? Who serves him? We see that a thousand, thousand ministered to him. Those are his ministers. But more than that, 10,000 times 10,000 stand before him. And that's a vast army. Nebuchadnezzar had lots of ministers. We remember that. He had a pretty good sized army. But this army, it dwarfs that of the most powerful empire that has ever been or shall ever be. This is the greatness and the glory of this ancient of days. 
His kingdom is categorically different than anyone else who has been. And all the things are as nothing. All the armies of the world absolutely as nothing in his sight. And we should say, by the way, as it describes as 10,000 times 10,000, among them most certainly are the holy angels. Thousands and thousands, who knows how many of them. But even one, what could that one army do? You remember that one day that over 180,000 were slain by this one angel. What could thousands of angels do? This is his army. This is to his glory. That's who he is. This is who serves him. Now what is he going to do? It says the court was seated and the books were opened. Isn't that what happens even today in courtrooms? Court was seated and the books were opened. And he will judge. Now he, unlike what happens in contemporary courtrooms, will judge in perfect justice in accordance with the book that he himself has written. And I think this, again, is a source of great comfort for us who live in these, these comings and goings and these vicissitudes of, of the way the world works. And we say, look at this injustice here and this injustice there. And you see these the ISIS in their impunity just slaying God's people. And who is going to bring them to justice? I want you to understand something that's going on right now, and that is that the Lord is writing. He has his book, and the events of sinful man he is recording in his book. Do not think that nothing happens. There will be those pages of that book perfectly recording all of these things by which they will be judged. One day those books are going to be open. So he's going to judge. Now, what's going to happen of this little horn that caused such trouble, who spoke such pompous words on that great day? What is going to happen to him? Verse 11, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame, because that is what is going to happen to Satan and all who follow him on the day of judgment. Revelation 20.10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and a false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, I'm sure that for all of you in various ways, that is a comforting thought because you know, at least theoretically, that the devil is bad and it is to the justice and glory of God that he will be so destroyed and we are looking forward to it. But I would hazard a guess to say that those of you who have been more oppressed, those who have been more sore tempted by him, those who have been brought to greater depths of depravity, those who have been opposed in greater sense, and those who, are, who know those who have been led astray by this wicked deceiver, perhaps even of your own family, for you it means something even a little bit more. And we will be looking for... Great anticipation. The day when our enemy is so completely destroyed by the ancient of days. Devil who deceived them. Cast into the lake of fire and brimstone to be tormented forever. And there will be no sympathy for him. But rather great justice and jubilation for the saints who have suffered at his hand. Well, we need to know and we need to remember that God reigns throughout all of these things. There's no exception to that in the slightest. But fourthly, Christ is setting up the everlasting kingdom. Yes, these other kingdoms come and go, but there's something else that's happening. Verse 13, I was watching in the night visions. Behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him before him. Who is the Son of Man? 
No need to waste too much time on this because we've already seen him before. We've seen him, for instance, in the fiery furnace as one like the Son of Man. He is the Lord Jesus Christ who comes and rescues his people even in the the fiery furnace. The question is, what is in this procession? You see, as, as the court is established, as the king is, is holding court, one of the things that happens, not only are wicked judges, this even happens in the military. We did the very same. We would mete out punishment to evildoers at mast, as we called it, and we would also have a different kind of mast, meritorious mast, in which those who had done well were, were rewarded. Now, what's going to happen here? It looks like some dignitary is coming to receive a gift. And the Ancient of Days wants to give a gift to this dignitary who happens to be the son of God, his own son. What is he going to do? What kind of gift could he give to his son? Well, it looks like it's a kingdom. Verse 14, Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. This is what the Father gives to the Son. This is the great gift. There is, a, a, we must understand what the Lord has inherently because he is the eternal Son of God. One of the contributions that Calvin gave to us in his doctrine of the Trinity is to say, That yes, there is an order to the Trinity, and the Father is the fountainhead of deity. He is not begotten of anyone. He he does not proceed from any. He is the fountainhead of deity, but, but the Son is eternally begotten of him. And he does not derive his deity from the Father. He is, in the word, he is autotheos. He is God in and of himself. And I bring up this word not to... To just throw out a Latin term, but I want you to understand that the Father did not bestow as a gift divinity on the Son, okay? That's, that's like adoptionism or some other false idea of the Trinity. That's not what has happened. What does the Father then bestow on the Son in his infinite generosity and love towards the Son? Do you know what he bestows? A kingdom. Us. You and I, the redeemed people of God, that is the great gift that he is giving to his son. And we are always taken aback by it, aren't we? We still can't believe it. still can't believe because we see one another as we are now. We see one another in all of our sin and limitations. And we see ourselves. Here we are in this community center. And we look so weak and small and despised by the world and all the rest of it. It doesn't seem like much, but I want you to know this is the greatest gift That the living God, in all of his infinite wisdom, and all of his wonderful plans throughout all of eternity, could possibly bestow upon the Son. Why do I I know this? He's not exactly going to give him a lesser gift, is he? He's not going to give him a discounted gift, is he? He gave him the best gift he possibly could. And we know that Christ himself purchased for himself a bride. We know that he was willing to shed his blood in order that he might have us, in order that he might receive such a gift, the joy that was set before him that he endured, even the pain of the cross. This is what the Ancient of Days is going to give. He's going to give him the bride, this beautiful bride of the church, this dominion and glory and kingdom. Now, we have seen these other kingdoms of men come and go, but this one is utterly different. That's what's so wonderful about it. These other kingdoms get a verse apiece. 
The whole Bible is about this kingdom from beginning to end, and there will be no end to it whatsoever. It shall not be destroyed. It could not be destroyed. And that kingdom is being set up even now. That's what's happening. Uh, the earthly kingdoms, yeah, they come and they go, but Christ, you know, he, is, he really is setting up an everlasting kingdom, and it continues to go from one thing to the next, and though it seems, in fact, we know, we know what, what is said here, that there will be persecutions. That same horn was making war against the saints. That's happening right now. And prevailing against him even looks like sometimes he's prevailing. Maybe even in this land today, it even seems that the forces of atheism and secularism and, and anti-Christian forces everywhere, they seem to be prevailing. But we know the truth, don't we? Because that's not going to last forever. We know that this kingdom is going to stand. And we know, in fact, that in time to come, though in verse 25, this, he's still speaking pompous words against the Most High, and he's going to persecute the saints of the Most High, and that the saints will even be given into his hand for a time. But rather, one day, the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given not only to Christ, but to the people, the saints of the Most High. Because we ourselves will, will likewise inherit this great kingdom. And we need to understand this kingdom is even now being set up as the gospel goes forward. Well, these are the things that are going to happen until the Ancient of Days takes his final seat on the last day, on Judgment Day. And what do we say about all this? How do we apply it? I would say, first of all, that we ought to expect difficulties and persecutions and troubles in this life. John 16, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulations. And be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. We need to know that. It's true. God is not hiding that from us. He's explaining it in the clearest way possible that, that he is going to be at war with the saints, this little horn. That this, the, he's going to persecute them, and for some time, they're going to be given into his hand. And so when we encounter these things, we should not encounter them as, as if some strange thing happened. But as Daniel that night, when somebody came and brought him in and said, Yeah, yeah, um, save your honors. Don't, don't bother giving to me. Uh, this, this very night's going to be the end of you, and there'll be another kingdom. We were expecting that. Um, we can be like that when tribulation and persecutions come to us. It's no strange thing. This is the will of the ancient of the days that for a time we should be in this situation. Expect difficulties. And secondly, I'd say that we should focus on the ancient of days. And the reason why I say that is because as those who expect difficulties, we will rightly have an eye out. We will be looking around and we will see both what is happening in the world around what is happening more locally in, in this nation, in our situation here. We will be considering also the church itself and all the doctrinal challenges. And, and Satan is always throwing out, planting lies and deceptions everywhere, trying to destroy the church. And we'll have an eye to these things. We ought to. We're supposed to. But what happens then? They have all of our focuses there. Well, we come to despair. And the Lord would not want us to do that. 
The whole point of this, give a verse each to these kingdoms that are going to come and go. Remind us more than once there's going to be trouble. But wait a minute, wait a minute, what's the central focus? Is the Ancient of Days. I watched until what? The Ancient of Days was seated. Because that's where the focus of the child of God should be. On God himself. And all of our watching, let the focus, let the central, let the highlight be the Lord God himself. 1 Corinthians 15, 24, by the way, this is another explanation of these things. Then comes he in, when he delivers a kingdom to God the Father. It's interesting, it can be considered both of these ways. There's a sense in which God bestows the kingdom There's another to the, the Son. There's another sense in which the Son delivers the kingdom to the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. We should focus on that reality of the ultimate victory of the triune God. And then thirdly and finally, we should take heart. We expect difficulties. We have our focus on God and therefore we take heart. Because what it says in verse 18, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and even forever and ever. It's not going to be like the situation in Daniel's day as a youth, when he was taken captive against his will and those of his parents and his whole nation taken away and taken to Babylon. It won't even be the situation like, like Daniel himself, given to be sometimes the third, sometimes the, first, the second ruler in the whole land underneath the king himself. No, we will actually possess the kingdom soon enough. It will be ours. We reign forever and ever with Christ, our head, our husband, As joint heirs of life, we are the children of God. He is our elder brother. And we should take heart in these things. You see, because we're sort of like the way we we think of characters in a story or book. And we've already read the book. We already know what's going to happen in the end. And therefore, we're not overly shaken when things look very bad in the middle of the story. We almost expect that to happen. But, but we're not losing sleep over that because we've already read the end of the story. and We know what's going to happen. We know that this has a happy ending. And brothers and sisters, we have a happy ending. Just speaking earlier, it's not like we're on the team that has some slender chance of winning. We are on the team of which we have to win. It's, it's the game is completely rigged. There is no way that we can lose. The the Father has arranged all things precisely to display his glory and giving us the kingdom. Do not be afraid, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And we've we've seen the end. He gives it to us more than once. It's here in Daniel. It's, It's in the Gospels. It's certainly in Revelation. Read it again. This is what happens to us. Take heart. Take heart. Let us, we'll soon enough inherit all things, so let us not lose heart. But take courage for the few days that remain. Let's pray.
Great God and Heavenly Father, Lord, how we pray that in difficult days to come, even in this week before us, we know, Lord, that Satan is crafty. We know that the world and the flesh and the devil all conspire against us in all so many ways, particularly to discourage us as well as to to deceive us and bring us into sin and slavery. Lord, how we pray that these words that we have heard and spoken, that they would live on in us, that this word would take deep root in our souls, and that we ourselves would recognize that you reign, and that even now Christ is setting up this everlasting kingdom that will not be destroyed. And as much as it is the Father's pleasure to give it to the Son, so it is the Son's pleasure to give it to us, his bride. And Lord, this is the happy ending. All of the enemies will be destroyed and we will be saved and brought into this glorious kingdom. And how we pray, Lord, therefore, that we would take heart and you'd give us the courage to continue to serve you and not grow weary in doing good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.